0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld, and today we're concluding our series The Family of Influence with a message entitled Gender and Submission to God's Will. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11 as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I don't need to prove to you that it takes two genders to produce a family. I also don't need to prove to you that both male and female produces something that the other cannot in order to produce a child. That there are gender roles in producing a family should be under the title, The Birds and the Bees 101. I'm also not telling you anything that's puzzling when I say that a mother plays a unique and distinct role in relation to her small child. The child grows in her womb, and it is her voice that the child hears and that the child knows. And when the child is small, it's her breast that the child suckles. The father, because of his strength, can play a role of protector and defender, but she uniquely plays the role of a nurturer. That's gender. It's my normal custom to do a verse-by-verse Bible teaching, but at special times of the year, I take the time to do a topical series that is both a topic that's readily found in the Bible and one that's especially relevant to the issue that Christians and the culture we live in are facing. For this week, I have been speaking about family, that it was God who created us male and female, and that gender is a precious gift from our Creator. I've also wanted to convey the Bible theme that God created gender so that a man might leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. While we affirm that singleness is a precious gift that's given by the Creator, we also affirm the central place given to marriage. Christian people need to look towards marriage as a gift, and our young need to be trained to look forward to their own marriage as the way in which God has designed them to live. And so gender, marriage, and then sexual fidelity, made by God exclusive for marriage. And now I want to return to the theme of gender. I want to argue that God has given us a unique role to play when He assigned our gender to us. I wanna speak about God's goodness expressed in male and female. I want you to think of your gender as a precious gift given to you from your creator who in wisdom assigned your gender and with it gave you a task. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon on this topic before. Why is he speaking about this? But before you judge what I'm about today, let me say to men, it's my aim that you consider your masculinity to be a precious gift from God. I I want you to love being a man. And to women, it's my aim for you to consider your femininity as a precious gift from God. I want you to love being a woman. Moreover, I want us all to consider how we might disciple our little boys to become mature men and our little girls to become mature women. Now that I've stated matters this way, some of you might say, do I suspect a gender stereotyping going on? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly why I want to speak to this issue. I think this issue is not only crucial, but it's essential to the health of our faith and the future to the church. So let me explain. In the Western world, and by that I mean our culture, we're now experiencing a vast moral revolution. There is in Western culture almost nothing left of a biblical worldview which once was central to our culture. In its place is the worldview of moral relativism. So that's the idea that there is no road map to describe either where you've been or where you're going. And that may sound a bit scary. I mean, who takes a summer road trip without a map or a GPS? I mean, who goes down roads without knowing where it will lead or how they'll get back when they should get lost? But to some, this sounds absolutely exhilarating. If you have no fixed reference points, if you have no moral absolutes, you are free to take whatever course you want to take. No map now defines where you have to go. You know, as Bob Seeger sang a number of years ago, stood alone on the mountaintop, staring out at the Great Divide. I could go east, I could go west. It was all up to me to decide. But there is no greater moral revolution in our society today than the one that surrounds itself with the issue of gender identity. The new approach to gender identity is the next big thing in this road trip without a map. What's now before us is what has been called the transgender revolution, and it has just barely begun. Not long ago, the New York Times reported on a transgender man named Andy Inkster. He'd always wanted to have biological children. Now, at the age of 18, she underwent a transition from female to male, and she received testosterone treatment and eventually underwent surgery to have her breast removed. But she left her female reproductive organs intact. In her mid-twenties, she decided it was time. She stopped taking testosterone and started trying to get pregnant. She sought fertility treatment at Bay State Reproductive Medicine Clinic in Massachusetts. Although the Bay State facility has a very strong anti-discrimination policy for gender identity, they refused to treat him or her because they said they had no expertise to treat transgender patients. So Mr. Inkster, as she called herself, found treatment in another medical clinic, got pregnant, and bore a child, she said, as a male. In the meantime, she successfully sued Bay State Reproductive Medicine for sexual discrimination. And later that year, the New York Times produced an article entitled The New Gay Orthodoxy. And here they stated that the debate regarding the acceptance of homosexuality is over. Furthermore, they state that endorsement of same-sex marriage in every sphere of public life is now a non-negotiable. So how do we know that? Well, they know that because just 10 years ago, only 30% of North Americans accepted homosexuality as a normal practice. Today, more than 50% do, and that number will continue to grow significantly. That means that those who disagree will become a very small minority in the future. But as I've said, this road trip has just barely started. Not long ago, Time magazine featured television star Laverne Cox, a man who looks very much like a woman. The cover read, The Transgender Tipping Point, America's Next Civil Rights Frontier. The article stated that transgender people are those who identify with a gender other than the sex they were assigned at birth. In other words, your gender is a matter of choice and comfort, not a matter of biological determinism. Modern medicine and science have even made that a possibility. Even your biology is no roadmap. In order to deal with this, all manner of social institutions are trying to catch up with the new social reality anti-bullying policies in schools and in workplaces, rightly want to protect people who identify themselves as gay and lesbian. And by the way, as a Christian, I also want to stop bullying. I also want that we protect people from, from being mocked and ostracized or victimized. We as Christians actually agree that bullying is always wrong we must not laugh or make jokes or exercise some form of condescension. And if you're doing that, you need to stop. But in the midst of this, many Christians have come to feel that anti-bullying policies have actually been used to bully us. We're told that unless we agree with a morality that has no roadmap, we ought to be silenced. And that deeply impacts us, for we believe that to be male or to be female, is a gracious gift that comes from our Creator, and with that gift comes unique roles and responsibilities that directly relate to our gender. But with the transgender revolution now on the doorstep, new policies are being drafted to raise awareness of transgender people among us. These policies would allow people to participate in any sex-segregated sport, not according to their gender, but in accordance with their chosen gender identity. And furthermore, the use of washrooms and change rooms and so forth, they're going to need to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. The road ahead is really quite confusing indeed. Now, some of us may want to respond with harshness or simply condemn sin as sin. I mean, we want standards because we know that standards come from God. And those of us who do this will quickly become marginalized and labeled as extremist. But others will want to respond in grace, for for we know that God is gracious. But in so doing, we're in danger of not expressing the roadmap that our Creator has not only designed us, but He has told us how to live. Now in this week on the importance of family, I've I've tried to steer clear of the political agenda. I have argued that the early church prevailed not by attempting to pass laws or by creating a political movement, but by creating a church which presented an authentic Christian movement within the wider culture. And they did this for several reasons. You know, first, had the early church centered on slavery or sexual immorality or Roman oppression, I mean, this emphasis would have diverted them from the preaching of the gospel. We always stand in danger of becoming known as the people who oppose everything rather than the church of Jesus that calls people to know Christ. And it is this calling to know Christ that is the most attractive message that
0: we have. Now is the time to register for Back to the Bible Canada's Caribbean Celebration Cruise this February 2018 nine days upon Royal Caribbean's Freedom of the Seas, enjoying all that an incredible cruise ship has to offer and do so while being encouraged and inspired by the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, laughter and encouragement from Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway and wonderful music and worship with guests Shane and Angela Weeb. Bring friends, bring family for this great vacation experience and make sure to register soon to avoid disappointment as we're already 50% full. Back to the Bible Canada's Celebration Caribbean Cruise, February 2018. For more information or to register, call us at 1 800 663 2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And remember that all ministry vacation events or tours are funded exclusively by the participants, and no ministry resources are used for this purpose.
1: think most Christians believe that we're never going to win this battle over gender identity. At least we will look like those who are bringing a road map to a trip in which everyone has already agreed there will be no map. At worst, we're going to appear to be violating individual rights and freedoms, imposing our morality on others, and advocating attitudes of hatred toward those with whom we disagree. Clearly this is not the way forward, but what is? We need to remember that the world the church was born into was a world that was not so much unlike the world in which we presently live. The value of human life, the nature of sexual ethics, the prevalence of moral relativism was everywhere in Roman culture. For example, archaeologists have found ancient sewage drain pipes in the city of Rome, and they are plugged with human fetuses, the result of abortions. Slavery was rampant. Human life was cheap. People entertained themselves watching human beings slaughter one another in the games. Homosexuality was common. Religious pluralism was not only accepted, it was demanded that all people properly show respect for the multitude of gods and goddesses, including the sexual perversity that often went along with it. Christians who did not accept this were often called haters of the human race. It is what the church did in these circumstances that I find so valuable. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, you will notice several things in this very short passage. First, Christians were called to reach the lost. Christians were clear that sin was sin, but they were equally clear that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. And for this reason, they approached a sinful fallen world with both love and with the good news of the gospel. Our message is not that we are moralists. We're not out there like an 18th century English school chastising everyone for what they've done wrong. Our message is that every single human being is fallen and broken. wrecked. And in this ruin that is felt in every area of our humanity, it's felt in our intellect, in our emotions, and our will. And we are all broken sexually. So let's be clear. We call broken the person committing adultery, the guy living with his girlfriend, the person hooked on pornography, the person who struggles with same-sex attraction, the person who lusts after a person of the opposite sex and rehearses a sex act or romantic liaison in his or her heart. The call of Christ is for all to come to him, confess our brokenness, and then call it sin, and come to Christ to be healed. There we will find a marvelous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Yes, Christ died for the unworthy and for the broken. And second, notice that Christians don't feel superior to the lost. We feel that we live in our own sin, but we've been shown mercy. It is on that basis that we cannot react any different with others. See, that's both true of those in the LGBTQ community as well as those among us who still struggle with same-sex attraction or who struggle with gender identity. None of us, if we are Christian, are smug or condemning. We are all too aware of our own sins. On commenting on the prevalence of sin still remaining in all believers, it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, Our prayers have stains in them. Our faith is mixed with unbelief. Our repentance is not so tender as it should be. Our communion is distant and interrupted. We cannot pray without sinning, and there is filth even in our tears. In other words, those who have grown close to Christ are hardly in the position of moral superiority. Let me again quote from Spurgeon. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness, not my merit, but my misery, not my riches, but my need. So while we reach out in compassion, it's not enough. If, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we were washed and sanctified, then it must mean that that we submit to what the Bible teaches us about gender. And in this regard, I have five things I want to say. Five things the Bible teaches of gender, and I say this with an indebtedness to Kevin DeYoung. First, there are prescribed roles attached to gender. We mean that men and women are fully equal, yet they play complementary roles. Well, how so? Well, first of all, it's so in marriage. Ephesians five twenty-two to 33 tells us that the marriage relationship is to be based on Christ and his church. The man role plays Christ and gives leadership. The woman role plays the church and submits to her husband. And since we are clear that the role of the husband is to lead, and from Genesis 1, the role of the wife is to be a helper suitable for him. We don't find this demeaning. Indeed, we find this life-affirming. Second, our gender comes with a divine command. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Therefore, God makes demands on the use of our body. According to a number of passages in both the Old and New Testaments, homosexuality is forbidden of us. So is sleeping with anyone, not your lifelong marriage partner. Why? Because with gender comes a divine command. Third, our appearance needs to celebrate our unique gender. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. That same principle is carried out in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about such things as length of hair as it relates to gender. Now, I am fully aware, as you are, that these things are culturally conditioned. But there is a supracultural application to these passages. Dress in such a way that highlights your gender distinction, not in such a way that blurs the line. In our culture, we might say, men, don't wear eyeliner or makeup, and women, wear clothing that celebrates your femininity, but remain modest as you do so. Fourth, understand the male and female demeanor. I find Paul fascinating in this regard. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then several verses later, he says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So notice two things. First, Paul is not saying that this feminine role and this masculine role is is mutually exclusive. For men can act with gentleness but he does demonstrate that with the feminine comes the virtues of gentleness, affection, and even sacrifice. And with the masculine comes the tendency towards exhortation, the call to urge someone forward onto action. See, what we're saying is that we can see in Scripture a calling for both men and women to be trained, or should I say, discipled, to be that which is male or female. Now, fifthly and finally, We need to learn to rehearse our unique gender-assigned roles. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, 1-7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening." Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. (laughs) That's a mouthful. So much more could be said. I could speak about how to teach this to our sons and our daughters. Let me put all of this now into context. We do not believe that the stress on gender celebration is evangelistic, no? We believe our message must continue to center on Christ and on His glorious cross. We must acknowledge our own sin and be compassionate with those who have lost their way. We offer them not a moral way of living, but the grace that is found in Jesus. We invite all to come to Christ, and then we invite them to surrender their own lifestyle choices into His loving hands. But we must also be clear of our narrative. We know that the world has a narrative and it goes something like this. I have the right to choose my own way, but we too have a narrative. We say that we are the people of God and we have a mandate to allow our Creator to dictate what our lives are to be and how our lives are to be lived.
0: John, I think there's a lot of helpful information here. But I think what comes to my mind is that, you know, the world's narrative is very different than God's narrative. And that crosses all kinds of boundaries, not just gender, but gender as well.
1: You know, Ben, I think that's really insightful. I happened to be uh, having lunch today and I saw a guy with a motorcycle jacket on and it had a big skull on it with swords through it. And it said, death before dishonor. And I kind of stared at that and I thought, I'd really love to have a conversation with that guy because I wanted to know what he was thinking. I thought that he was saying, you know, if anyone tries to, to in any way offend me, I'm going to take this to a fight. But our Bible tells us that's not the way. In other words, God tells us to forgive our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us, to love our enemies in every way. That's just one example. How many examples are there? where the culture that we live in does not provide us with a formula for living, and gender is one of those areas. We're simply going to have to buck the trend.
0: Thanks so much, John. And join us again next week for more of Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. (music) Gratitude, the quality of being thankful and readiness to show appreciation. Well, as part of the team at Back to the Bible Canada, we want to express our ready gratitude for your kindness. Your generosity during our June-July match campaigns exceeded expectations. He is a great God. Your partnership not only helped meet the fiscal year-end goal, but reinforced the presence of those across our nation who embrace a passion for Bible teaching. To express our appreciation, we want to send all of our listeners a free copy of the book Family Worship. It's a wonderful tool that helps incorporate worship into the family home. So thanks, and stay with us as together we strive to champion the truth of God's Word. Call and ask for your free copy of Family Worship, or offer a gift this month to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425, or visit backtothebible.ca.